I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that God has a plan and he is totally committed to working it out. The bad news is that God has an enemy who is totally committed to thwarting the purposes of God. And you and I are caught in the middle. Of course, the good news is that God wins in Christ. And it is our responsibility and joy to share in his victory. And that's what Ephesians chapter 6 is all about. God has an eternal cosmic plan. That this plan is focused in the Lord Jesus and that Christ is committed to building his church through which God's purposes are going to be worked out on earth. This, of course, means that those who claim to be Christian, those who are part of the body of Christ, the church, are required to understand that their Christianity has to be much more than one hour a week. It has to be a lifestyle that is worthy of their high calling, of being the body of Christ, caught up in God's eternal purposes. However, we have to understand that the evil one, the devil, and all his malevolent forces are diametrically opposed to the purpose of God. And we have to know how to live in the midst of the struggle. With that in mind, let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. This is what Paul says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Paul then goes into more detail, but let me just address those opening verses, first of all. When Paul was dictating this letter, he was in prison, and he was chained to a Roman soldier who was his guard. So he didn't have to look very far for an illustration of the conflict or the warfare in which he, as a Christian, and the Christians to whom he was writing, were involved and how they were to cope with it. He understood that he was dealing with some forces that were opposed to him. But he wanted to explain how the Christian, like the soldier in the midst of a struggle, has armor available to him. And so he looked at the armor, he looked at the equipment, he looked at the uniform of the Roman soldier beside him, and he used this as an illustration of the spiritual resources that are available to us. Now, the thing that we need to notice, first of all, about Paul's statement here concerning the warfare or the struggle that we're in is this. He uses the word to describe spiritual warfare as not being something vague and indistinct and esoteric, but it is something that is nitty-gritty down to earth. The spiritual conflict that we're in is not sort of a spiritual video game. It's hand-to-hand conflict with the forces of evil. Now, many moons ago, I had the privilege of serving in the Royal Marines. 
And as I did my training, I learned that there are three things that any person who's going to go into military conflict has to be clear about. Number one, they have to be clear about the enemy. They've got to be able to identify the enemy. Number two, they've got to know exactly what they are supposed to do. Number three, they have got to be fully conversant with their equipment and their weapons and know how to use them. If you don't know the enemy and you don't know what you're supposed to do and you can't use your weapons, you're no good as a soldier and you'll be defeated. It's very interesting to notice that the Apostle Paul in this passage in effect tells Christians engaged in the spiritual struggle, number one, you need to know your adversary. Number two, you need to be willing to accept your assignment. And number three, in order to do that, you must wear your armor. Those are the three things that I want to address with you. Identify your adversary. Notice the surprising statement that Paul makes here in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For the struggle is not against flesh, and blood. Identify your enemy. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is really quite shocking. He says, very, very often, when we get ourselves into difficulties, we identify the difficulties with a person, and the person becomes the enemy. He said, what we've got to understand is this, that our struggle is not basically, fundamentally, against flesh and blood. It's not people that are the problem. It is behind the people that there is the devil, the evil one. And in addition to the devil or the evil one, there are rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. And we've already noticed that the heavenlies are the realm of invisible reality. You see, we get into trouble. We have our struggles in life. But very, very often we identify the struggles as simply being down here in the realm of visible reality. And Paul says, no. Identify the real adversary. The real adversary behind those things is the devil, the evil one, and all his malevolent forces who use the material and the people and the personal as agents of his activity. That is critically important. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But we are struggling against malevolent spiritual forces. Now, how does this apply? Well, some of you are struggling in your marriages. And as you're struggling in your marriages, you're having difficulty with your spouse. And the struggle has become a struggle against flesh and blood. The thing to realize, of course, is this, that that's not really the enemy. The enemy of your souls is the one who's the enemy of the purposes of God. And the one who's the enemy of the purposes of God is totally bent on wrecking families. Don't fight the wrong enemy. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that your spouse who's giving you trouble is not an agent of the evil one and is not totally without fault. But if we simply deal with that which is visible and that which is material and that which is personal, the best that we will do is solve the symptoms. We won't really address the fundamental problem. So 
And people say we've got all kinds of problems in our culture at the present time. And it's the politicians. So what we've got to do is deal with these politicians. Well, is that really the struggle? Or is it that the politicians could conceivably become agents through which the one who is diametrically opposed to the work of God is working? And could it be that whilst we may have political solutions to a political problem, all we're solving there is the symptoms? And the real struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the authorities under the thraldom of the devil, the evil. Well, who is this devil? Well, let me suggest to you that Scripture tells us a whole lot about him. It tells us that this devil is the one whom Jesus met. People sometimes say to me, you know, at first we thought you were reasonably intelligent, but now are you really telling me that you believe in a personal devil? And the answer is, well, thank you for thinking I'm reasonably intelligent, and yes. Yes, I do. And they say, well, why? And the answer is Jesus did, and he was quite smart. Jesus believed in a personal devil. He confronted him in the wilderness, We are told that in the power of the Spirit he went into the wilderness for a period of 40 days. He had a nose-to-nose confrontation with a personal evil one. And he humiliated the evil one. And he totally routed the evil one. And in the end, the evil one turned and ran away from him. And Jesus, in the fullness of the Spirit, came out of the wilderness the way he went in. That's why he was able to say with great composure, the devil has nothing on me. Moreover, the devil is the one whom Jesus confronted on the cross. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that through death, Jesus destroyed him that has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivers those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So the enemy is a malevolent spiritual force who has phenomenal power But he is one who has been humiliated by Christ and defeated on the cross. However, Scripture tells us that he goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In other words, this evil one can release such overwhelming evil against us that it's almost as if he pounces on us and chews the life out of us. Years ago, I was in Botswana. As we were tracking through the bush, we saw the spoor of a lion, but mixed with the spoor of the lion was the spoor of a buffalo. My tracker friends who understood the spoor said, oh, here, the lion was chasing the buffalo. And then I noticed that the spoor of the lion disappeared. And at the same point that the spoor of the lion disappeared, the spoor of the buffalo was much deeper in the sand. And my experienced friend said at that point, the lion jumped on the back of the buffalo and they said he wouldn't last more than a few seconds and wouldn't go more than a few yards. And sure enough, we went in the corner, there was the carcass of the buffalo. The lion, a roaring lion, pounced on the buffalo, got on his back and ripped the life out of him. And this devil, this evil one, This malevolent force of evil, diametrically opposed to the purposes of God, will do all that he can to hinder and ruin and mar the outworking of God's divine purpose in your life. We don't struggle against flesh and blood. We struggle against the devil, against the evil one, and his malevolent minions. However, 
The devil, of course, has another approach. He doesn't just approach us like a roaring lion. Sometimes he comes like an angel of light. Sometimes he comes not head on with overwhelming force. Sometimes he comes in the back door insidiously, quietly, stealthily, stealing up upon us. Many years ago, the first time I visited Singapore, I was particularly interested to look at something that I'd heard about in Singapore, and that was the military defenses that the British had built there. I was particularly interested in this because during the time of the Second World War, the men of the town where I lived were all drafted into the border regiment. And the border regiment was shipped out to Singapore, all of them on one troop ship, hundreds of men from the area where I grew up as a boy. But something terrible happened to them. As their ship docked in Singapore, they had not got the right intelligence, and they didn't know that in the hours immediately prior to them docking in Singapore, the Japanese had overrun the place, and they docked, and they marched off the ship, and were simply shipped straight into a Japanese concentration camp for the rest of the war. What had happened? Well, what had happened was that the British had built formidable defenses for Singapore. There was only one thing wrong. They'd built them on the south of the island, facing out to the ocean. They had put massive naval guns in deep concrete bunkers. The only problem was that the Japanese came in from the north. And they couldn't turn the guns round. So they didn't identify the right enemy. So they got the wrong strategy. So they never enjoyed the victory. And the Apostle Paul says, you better understand who the enemy really is. Because if you don't identify the enemy, you'll have the wrong strategy. If you have the wrong strategy, you won't gain the victory. In warfare, we have all heard stories of overwhelming military might coming against people, but what we also know is that in modern warfare, there are various techniques where it is not necessarily might against might. One of the things that they do in modern warfare is try to create a diversion. So that if you're going to attack from the north, then the thing to do is to divert the attention of the defenders from the north and create a diversion on the east or the west. It's an old trick. Actually, the devil knew it much longer. He knew it long before modern military strategists figured it out. He's a past master at diversion. He knows what it is to be able to get the attention of God's people and divert them into secondary issues so thoroughly that they aren't even aware that they're being suckered into defeat on primary issues. We can get diverted into all manner of good things. Remember, he comes as an angel of light. He's not coming like the roaring lion now. He is coming like the angel of light, and he is presenting to us beautiful, seductive, wonderful things that are simply meant to divert us from the task. What a superlative job he's doing. 
He can do it with our homes. He can do it with our jobs. He can do it with our money. He can do it with our sports. He can do it with our friends. He can do it with our gardenings. He can do it with all manner of things. Angel of light stuff. This not roaring lion. Diversionary tactics. And if diversion won't do it, deception will. He is known as the deceiver. In the First World War, Winston Churchill was the first Lord of the Admiralty. He devised a strategy that he called attacking the soft underbelly of the Axis. In other words, instead of meeting the forces head-on, he was going to come in from the back. And so he devised a brilliant military strategy where the, the Allied forces would come in the back door through the Dardanelles. The task was given to the Australians and the New Zealanders. The strategy was brilliant, the execution was very poor, and the Australians and the New Zealanders were massacred at Gallipoli. Churchill was in disgrace. He was dismissed, or he resigned, and at the age of 42, he said, my life is over. The age of 42, my life is over. He simply settled down to writing to earn his living. One of the things that he wrote was this. He said, never again will I meet force with force. In future, I will always confront force with deception. And this is what he said. In times of warfare, the truth is so precious, she must always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. Sounds odd, doesn't it? In times of war, the truth is so precious, she must always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. Let me show you how it worked out. You all heard of the resounding success of how the Allies went across the English Channel on D-Day and began to roll back the formidable force of the Nazi armies in Western Europe. Did you know that one of the reasons that they succeeded in this brilliant military maneuver was that the Nazis weren't expecting them? Do you know why they weren't expecting them? They weren't expecting them because they had decided to get the body of somebody who'd been killed, dress it in the uniform of a high-ranking Royal Marine, put in all kinds of phony papers in the body, and attach to it pseudo-plans for the invasion, saying that the invasion was going to take place on a certain date in a certain place, but they gave the wrong date and they gave the wrong place. And the Nazis bought into it so thoroughly that they knew for a fact one weekend when it wasn't going to happen. So thoroughly were they suckered in that Field Marshal Rommel, the one in charge of the defenses of Western Europe, took the weekend off and went home for his wife's birthday. And that's when D-Day struck. Deception. You might not be able to beat the big guy because he's just too big and too strong. If you can deceive him, and if you can divert his attention, you can beat him. The devil is a past master at diversion and is a superb strategist at deception. And he's doing it all the time. If he can't use deception and he can't use diversion, then he's perfectly open to utilizing another military strategy called demoralization. If you can just strike fear into the enemy, if you can just give an element of doubt into the thought patterns of the enemy, if you can just start to discourage them, then you are nine-tenths of the way 
to defeating them. They may actually be militarily stronger than you, but if you can introduce demoralization, that will do the trick. It's not very new. When I was a kid during the Second World War, there was a strange broadcast that we used to listen to in the evenings. It was the broadcast of a very powerful station coming out of Germany. It was a program where a traitor from Ireland who'd gone over to the Nazis used to broadcast back to Britain. He was bent on twisting the news, giving propaganda, and giving the most outrageous claims so that he could simply demoralize the British people. Unfortunately, it didn't work because his claims were so outrageous that we actually used to switch him on in the evening to laugh at the stupid things he was saying, and it was treated more or less as a comedy program. That's where we got our jollies during the Blitz. We called him Lord Ho-Ho. But the strategy was brilliant. It's the strategy of demoralization. And the evil one knows that if he can just get fear in the hearts of God's people, and if he can just insinuate doubts into the hearts of God's people, and if he can just discourage them enough, then coupling diversion with deception, and then, in addition, demoralization, and if that doesn't work, simply introduce dissension, the angel of light is having a field day. The Apostle Paul says, we need to be able to stand against the devil's schemes, his cunning strategies. Now, if you don't know the enemy, you don't know who you're up against, then I promise you, you identify the wrong enemy, you'll develop the wrong strategy. Develop the wrong strategy, you won't enjoy the victory. Now then, we must be fair here, however. There are those who, on the one hand, simply ignore the evil one, and there are others who go to the other extreme and are obsessed by the evil one. C.S. Lewis says the devil doesn't really care whether you ignore him or obsessed by him. Either way, he wins. What we need is a balanced understanding, and the balanced understanding is this. He is a malevolent force. He is real. He has been discredited. He has been defeated, but he's still powerful and is still dangerous, but we have the means of standing against him. We'll see about this in just a moment. The thing, however, that we need to remember is this, that sometimes the people who are obsessed by the devil attribute to him things that are, quite frankly, not attributable to him at all. Remember what Paul said earlier on in Ephesians? He said, we've got to handle our anger. Because if we don't handle our anger, we may give a foothold for the devil. In other words, we can't just say the devil made me do it. That's Flip Wilson theology. What we have to be able to say is this. He's a real enemy. I've got to be on my guard against him. And I fully recognize that if I, through my own stupidity or ill-discipline or rank sinfulness, give him an opening, he'll take it. Know your enemy. We are not only to be fully conversant with the devil, 
the evil one. We're also to recognize that on his side, in the realm of invisible reality, are all kinds of malevolent spiritual forces. Now you say, "Uh uh-uh. You were disappointed us by telling us you believe in a personal devil. Now you're not going to tell us you believe in demons, are you? And the answer is, I'm terribly sorry to disappoint you. Yes. And I'll tell you why. Jesus did. And he was pretty smart. Or you say he was simply accommodating himself to the thinking of the generation of which he was a part. Are you sure? In actual fact, one of the writers, Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles and obviously the Gospel according to Luke, he was a trained physician. And if you read him carefully, you will notice that he very carefully differentiated between sickness and illness and demonic activity. And he was there and he knew what he was talking about. And I would suggest to you that if you have simply lived your life on the North American continent, then it is highly probable that you have never really confronted demonic activity. But if you have been in third world countries where people are all the time aware of demons and are spending their lives trying to placate the demons and are involved in all kinds of satanic worship and occult activity and all kinds of black arts, I promise you, you'll have come up against them. And I think it probably would be true to say that the more we see American culture lapsing into the occult and Satanism, the more probable it is that there will be incidents of this kind of thing. Know your enemy. Now, if we're clear about the enemy, I think probably then it's appropriate for us to consider our assignment. The good soldier not only understands who the adversary is, The good soldier also understands and accepts his assignment. What is the assignment? The assignment is be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Literally, be strengthened in the Lord. The command is in the passive. So in other words, this is a command addressed to you that you allow something to be done to you. It's very important that we notice that. The command is to be obediently responded to. But the obedience is that we allow something to be done to us. That points out, of course, on the one hand, the responsibility on our part to make sure we are being strengthened, but the responsibility on God's part, through his power, to do the strengthening. Now, he says that we're to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You may want to check back to chapter 1, verse 19. You will notice those three identical words are used to describe the power and the might and the strength of the risen Christ. You can go from chapter 1 to chapter 3 and you will find those same words again where the Apostle Paul is making the powerful statement that we are able in Christ to begin to discover his mighty power at work that is able to do abundantly above all that we can ever ask or imagine. We've got to understand our assignment is to allow the power of the risen Christ to strengthen us with all might. We're sure going to need it. I promise you something. If we think the struggle is against flesh and blood, we'll be using flesh and blood to counter it. If we understand that the struggle is against the spiritual realities in the invisible realm, we'll be hungry for spiritual power.
First command is be strengthened. The second command is stand against the canny, cunning, crafty, angelic angel of light approaches. In addition to that, be able to withstand the evil day when he comes against you like the roaring lion. And having done all this, at the end of the day, when the dust settles and the smoke clears, to be standing. Blooded, battered, and unbowed. That's your assignment. The top award for bravery in the British military is the Victoria Cross. By the way, I apologize for all these British illustrations and Second World War stuff, but that's my only personal experience of war, so forgive me. The Victoria Cross was awarded to the youngest person ever awarded the Victoria Cross. He was a teenager. His assignment was to be on one of His Majesty's Royal Navy ships at the time that the Japanese kamikaze pilots were literally physically crashing their planes in suicidal bombing raids, crashing their planes loaded with explosives into the ships. The task of this young man, this teenager, and the rest of his crew was to man one of the anti-aircraft guns on the side of this Royal Naval ship and try and shoot these planes down before they crashed into them. The battle was long and the battle was fierce. The Japanese came over in waves. Many of the ships were hit. The ship that this young man was on was hit by a kamikaze pilot. There was a vast explosion. The planes came over, machine gunned them as they had little protection in their anti-aircraft gun on the side of the ship. One by one, the men and his crew were killed until in the end, this young teenager manned the gun himself. And he kept firing and he kept firing. And as the ship was sinking around him and the fire was blazing and the explosives were exploding around him, when it was all over, they found him mortally wounded with his fingers on the trigger, still firing. He'd withstood the evil day. When the dust settled, when the smoke cleared, he still stood. That's your assignment. Not only that, we begin to discover that we're strengthened with might as we take unto us the whole armor of God. Notice it is God's armor that he loans you. It is that which God provides that you put on. And in addition to that, you make sure that you're living in an attitude of prayer, that you're constantly alert, and that you love Jesus with an undying love. It's all there. This is the assignment. So now I trust we're clear about the adversary and I trust we're clear about the assignment. The only thing we need to talk about now in the closing moments is the armor that we're to put on. Let me just walk you through it. This is what Paul says, using the graphic picture of the Roman soldier. Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The Roman soldier, of course, didn't wear the fatigues that the modern soldier wears. When he went into battle, he needed to tuck the loose flowing robes and tunic into a belt around him. And that became that which got rid of all the things that would trammel him and trip him up. And it became the very basis upon which all his equipment hung. It was fundamental 
And fundamental to the Christian is the belt of truth. Paul, earlier in our epistle, has talked about learning Christ. He's talked about the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. You know, the angel of light has appeared even in the church of Jesus Christ in America and is whispered in people's ears, there isn't such a thing as absolute truth. It's all relative. It may be true for you, but it isn't true for him. But as long as it's true for you, it's true. What we need is the truth as it is in Jesus. That he is the truth. And that which is contrary to him is error. So it might be politically correct to say Jesus is my truth, but I understand that he's not your truth, and we've got to understand that your truth is just as important as my truth. We don't have the freedom to do that. Because, you see, the angel of light has come with his diversionary and his deceptive tactics. He's totally demoralized you. The belt of truth. In addition to the belt of truth, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness, of course, is, means to be right with God and to live rightly before God. If we're going to stand in the battle, first of all, we've got to make sure we're right with God. The only way we can be right with God is to recognize that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we divest ourselves of them, seek his forgiveness and claim his imputed righteousness. And in the strength of that, we live through the Spirit rightly before him. And that becomes a breastplate that guards our vital organs. For the evil one would speak all kinds of doubts to us. But if we know deep in our hearts that we have buckled on the belt of truth as it is in Jesus and our heart is protected because we know that we're not basing our hope on our own righteousness but on the righteousness of Christ, the evil one cannot affect our hearts. In addition to that, we are to make sure that our feet are well shod. When I was in the Marines, one of the things they used to inspect regularly was our feet. Sounds gross, but they did. And if you got blisters on your feet when you were in the Marine commandos, as I was, you were immediately put on a charge and shipped off to the brig because you had caused yourself harm that meant you couldn't go into action. Your feet were critical. The Apostle Paul understood that the Roman soldiers had sandals with cleats on them. So that as they stood in the mud and the blood of the battlefield, they weren't slipping and sliding. They were taking their stand. And on a firm basis, they could fight the good fight. This is what Paul says. You've got to make sure that your feet are shod with the equipping that comes from the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is the good news that things are right between you and God. So that you're able to say in the hurly-burly of the battle, when peace like a river attendeth my way and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. There's my cleats. I'm in the battle. I'm girded with truth. I'm protected by his righteousness. 
I'm at peace with God and at peace with the world. Come hell or high water, I'm in the fight. And in addition to that, we are to take the shield of faith. Not the small shield, the large shield that was like a door made of wood coated with leather. So that when the enemy would take their arrows and dip them in pitch and set fire to them and shoot fiery arrows, they would simply be embedded in the door and extinguished. And the soldiers would be safe. And the evil one will send his fiery darts. and We could bring people up here one after the other to testify about the fiery darts they're dealing with. But what they need to understand is this that in utter dependence upon the all-sufficient power of Christ, they can take the shield of faith and extinguish those fiery darts. And in addition to that, we're to take the helmet of salvation. Actually, right into the Thessalonians, Paul slightly alters the statement, and he said, let us put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. The confidence of our salvation. This is not our past salvation. This is our future salvation. The hope and the confidence that one day our salvation will be complete and we will be safe home at last. And that becomes the helmet that guards your mind. For you go into battle... And you say, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Wow, this is scary. Why is this happening to me? And then you put on the helmet of salvation, which is the confidence that is yours that God is in control. And confident that he is in control, you're also confident that he will complete what he started in your life. So like the Apostle Paul, you face each day with this kind of mentality. There are two possibilities today. Possibility number one, I will live. Possibility number two, I won't. That about covers it. Would you agree with me? That about covers it. Then he goes a step further. Possibility number one, if I live today, Christ is my life. Possibility number two, if I don't, listen, death is my gain. Helmet of the hope of salvation. Come on, enemy. You're mean and you're ugly. You're totally, diametrically opposed to all the purposes of God that he wants to work out in my life and my marriage and my business and my parenting and my church. I know. I know you. I know what you're up to. Sometimes the roaring lion. Sometimes the angel of light. But come on. Come on. Belt of truth. Breastplate of righteousness. Feet charred with the Readiness that comes from the assurance of peace. Utter dependence on God that he will quench the fiery darts of the evil one. My mind stayed on him with the helmet of salvation. And look out, evil one, because I got in my hand the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This great defensive weapon. And be careful, because it's also a pretty good offensive weapon. I'm going to acquaint myself with it and I'm going to know how to use it and I will learn how to defend myself with it and I will know how to go on the offensive with it because it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so in the morning I'm going to get up 
And I'm not just going to think in terms of getting ready for the day. I'm going to think in terms of checking the armor is in place. And then we go into battle. Oh, by the way, praying with all supplication that we can call on the Lord to be in the fight with us. Oh, and by the way, thoroughly alert to what's happening in our lives so that at the end, we're drawing upon the grace that is available to all those who love the Lord Jesus with an undying love. What a wonderful, wonderful epistle is Ephesians. God has a plan. Cosmic, eternal, we're part of it. That's the good news. The bad news is there's a devil who is diametrically opposed to it. And we are caught in the middle. But the good news is he's a roaring lion on a short leash. And he appears as an angel of light, but we've ripped off his disguise. And he's beaten. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Ask yourself, if you will, three questions. Am I identifying the real enemy? Am I fighting the right fight? Am I using the proper weapons? Let's pray again. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work as woe, his craft and powers are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirits and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen.